Can you dream of a world immune to cancer? Hello everyone, my name is Nick and I'm the host of the annual live stream for The Cure where content creators and podcasters from around the world join me to raise money for the Cancer Research Institute and Immunotherapy Research, which is training the body's immune system to fight against all forms of cancer. Over the past seven years, thanks to the power of indie podcasters and the indie podcasting community and listeners just like you listening to this right now, we have raised over $90,000. And as I record this now, the eighth annual live stream for The Cure is barreling down upon us really, really quickly in just about two weeks. So join us, please, from May 29th through June 1st for 48 hours of amazing content from people all over the world and help us fight for a world immune to cancer. I'll now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. Thank you so, so much. And together, we can make a difference. Long ago, in the underground realm where there are no lies or pain, there lived a princess who dreamed of the human world. She dreamed of blue skies, the soft breeze and sunshine. One day, eluding her keepers, the princess escaped. Once outside, the brightness blinded her and erased her memory. She forgot who she was and where she came from. Her body suffered cold, sickness and pain. Eventually, she died. Her father, the king, always knew that the princess would return, perhaps in another body, in another place, at another time. And he would wait for her until he drew his last breath, until the world stopped turning. In a world overflowing with movies, we need a hero. Someone to separate the bad from the good. Hi everyone, I'm Em and welcome to Verbal Diorama episode 109, Pan's Labyrinth. This is the podcast that's all about the history and legacy of movies you know and movies you don't. And as always, a huge hi and welcome to everyone who's listening to this episode. Whether you are a brand new listener to this podcast or whether you are a returning listener or whether you are a regular listener who's been with me since day one, no matter how you are here, I am so glad and so grateful and so happy that you are here with me, especially today, because we are going to be talking about Pan's Labyrinth. And this is a very special movie. It's a very important movie. It's one of my favourite movies ever. I have a range of emotions watching this movie. So I'm really, really excited that you're here. So thank you so much. And as always, a huge thank you to everyone who's listened to recent episodes on Last Action Hero and Alien. People love Arnold Schwarzenegger, but they don't really love Last Action Hero. So I really did think it was worth looking into that movie a little bit more. Lots of people do love Alien, though. So thanks for that. I mean, it turned out to be more popular than Jaws on its first day of release, which is incredible. You guys clearly love scary monsters. So as my gift to you, I'm going to be giving you more scary monsters in this episode. You are welcome. Now, I'm going to play the trailer for Pan's Labyrinth, which is the first live action non-English movie on Verbal Diorama. I featured lots of anime in the past, all of which have had the option of English subtitles or English dubbing. Pan's Labyrinth has no English dubbed version. So this is the first movie that I featured where the subs v dubs debate is moot. Basically, you need to watch it with subtitles unless you speak Spanish. And I will say that subtitles take nothing away from the movie and subtitles should never be a barrier to you watching something, especially something as exquisite in beauty and melancholy and pain, brilliance as Pan's Labyrinth or El Labyrinto del Fauno, to give it its Spanish title. So without further ado, here's the trailer for Pan's Labyrinth. In a dark time, when hope was bleak, there lived a young girl whose only escape 
was in a legend that wanted her back. The legend speaks of the lost soul of a princess from another world who will one day be reborn. There will be signs that mark her return. There will be secrets that reveal her destiny. There will be a journey that will make you believe. In 1944, post-Civil War Spain, rebels still fight in the mountains against the Phalangist troops. The young and imaginative Ophelia travels with her pregnant and sick mother Carmen to the country to meet and live with her stepfather, the sadistic and cruel Captain Vidal. During the night, Ophelia meets a fairy and together they go underground in the centre of a labyrinth where she meets a fawn that tells her that she is a princess from a kingdom in the underworld. He also tells her that her father is waiting for her but she needs to accomplish three gruesome, tough and dangerous tasks first. Meanwhile, she befriends a servant, Mercedes, who is the sister of one of the rebels and actually is giving support to the group. In a dark, harsh and violent world, Ophelia lives in her magical world, trying to survive her tasks and see her father, the king, again. Let's quickly go through the cast of this movie. We have Ivana Baquero as Ophelia, aka Princess Moana, Sergi Lopez as Captain Vidal, Maribel Verdu as Mercedes, Doug Jones as the Fawn and the Pale Man, Ariadne Gill as Carmen and Alex Angulo as Dr. Ferrero, and Pan's Labyrinth was written and directed by Guillermo del Toro. Before we go into Pan's Labyrinth, a quick history lesson. Not that I am in any way qualified to do so, but I certainly think it helps set the scene for Pan's Labyrinth. This movie is set in 1944 in Francoist Spain, also known as the Francoist Dictatorship, where Francisco Franco ruled Spain between 1936 and 1975. The Spanish Civil War started in July 1936 and Franco was proclaimed head of state in October 1936. And in 1937, all parties supporting the Carlist traditionalist communion movement joined with the fascist Falange Party to form the Falange Española Tradicionalista y de las Llons. I don't know if I've pronounced that right, but I hope that I have. Francoists took control of Spain by war of attrition, imprisoning and executing Spaniards found guilty of supporting the Republic, as well as deeming any democratic elections, regional autonomy or votes for women as, in inverted commas, anti-Spain. Large numbers of Spanish Jews were imprisoned or had escaped the regime, Spanish Jews were captured and interned in Nazi concentration camps. Spain was considered neutral during the Second World War. However, they had ties to the Axis members Italy and Germany, whose leaders Benito Mussolini and Adolf Hitler had supported Franco during the Civil War. Spain never intervened in a military sense, however, showed support for the Axis powers. This would lead to Spain becoming isolated by many countries post the Second World War, and would mean they were not allowed to initially join the United Nations. 
During the Francoist period, many families struggled to feed their children. Another reason, perhaps I'm going to come back to this, why Ophelia, although seemingly well-fed, although we never actually see her eat, we only actually see adults eat and servants preparing food, steals a grape from the pale man. And again, I'm going to come back to the pale man in a little bit. Captain Vidal, a staunch believer in phalangism, supported the establishment of the dictatorship post the end of the Civil War and supported the conservative ideas of the regime, such as the role of women as submissive and obedient wives and mothers, as well as hunting down the Republican rebels who opposed the fascist regime. And the fascist regime in Spain wasn't Del Toro's original idea for Pan's Labyrinth. It was originally a story about a pregnant woman who falls in love with a fawn in a labyrinth and allows him to sacrifice the baby if they can all be together in the afterlife and the labyrinth will thrive again. But really the story of Pan's Labyrinth started with El Espionazio del Diablo, the devil's backbone. Del Toro always intended Pan's Labyrinth to be a thematic complement to The Devil's Backbone, which was set in Spain in 1939. Along with Kronos, Del Toro explores distinct genres of storytelling, vampires in Kronos, ghosts in The Devil's Backbone, and fairy tales in Pan's Labyrinth in a distinctly personal and visual way. All three have child protagonists, and all three straddle the line between fantasy and reality. Del Toro had 20 years worth of ideas in notebooks for Pan's Labyrinth, which he subsequently lost in a London cab, only to have the honest cabbie return the notes two days later after the cabbie found a piece of stationery in the notes which referenced a London hotel. He returned it to the hotel, who returned it to Del Toro. Del Toro saw this as fate and that it was a sign for him to make this movie. Sergi Lopez, who played Vidal and who was mostly known for his comedic roles, was involved with the project a year and a half before filming even started and sat with Del Toro for over two and a half hours as Del Toro described his ideas in detail. When Lopez received the script, he was amazed that mostly all of the detail was kept in. And just quickly on the character of Vidal, because Vidal is a fascinating character in this movie. His sense of self-loathing is only matched by his misogyny. He's haunted by the celebrated life of his father and obsessed with matching his infamy. He refuses to believe Carmen is carrying anything other than a son to carry on his family name and traditions in a patriarchal sense. Basically, the health of his son comes before the health of his sick wife. We don't know how they married or why, but we can guess it was perhaps some form of a marriage of convenience in that Carmen and her child were taken care of after the death of Ophelia's father and in return he would have a wife to take care of his needs and Carmen would bear him a son. He even scolds his wife for discussing their romance and he has no time for his stepdaughter. When Carmen dies during childbirth he's not seen mourning her just celebrating the birth of his son. He chastises Ophelia for using the wrong hand to shake. He doesn't hesitate to shoot a child to remove her from the equation. Vidal is really a terrible excuse for a human being, but he's necessary in the movie to be this ultimate real world evil. And there's a lot of mirroring that's going on. If you compare Vidal with the pale man, you see all of his compatriots at a table enjoying a feast. And it's pretty much shot in exactly the same way as the pale man is shot with a feast in front of him, except obviously he's not eating that feast. Um, I do want to come back to the Pale Man in a little bit, but the movie is called Pan's Labyrinth in English, but the translation is The Fawn's Labyrinth in Spanish. The Fawn is not called Pan and is never referred to as Pan, so why is the movie called Pan's Labyrinth? Well, Pan is the ancient Greek god of the wild, of nature, amongst other things. He has the hindquarters, legs and horns of a goat, similar to a fawn. Pan is neither good nor evil and is seen as mischievous and untrustworthy. He's often affiliated with sex, fertility, and because of that, this season of spring. Pan's Roman counterpart is Faunus. Pan is used for the English language title simply because the Greek god Pan is more well-known to English speakers than a fawn. Supposedly. Because I know what a fawn is, because I've read The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, and I know what Mr Tumnus looks like. But anyway, I digress. Guillermo del Toro has confirmed that the fawn is not Pan, and if it were Pan, then Ophelia would be in deep doo-doo, although he didn't use the word doo-doo, but I'm going to use the word doo-doo because this is a clean language podcast. Guillermo del Toro point-blank refused offers from Hollywood Studios to make the movie in the US, even though it would have secured the financing 
citing previous issues with the Weinstein's handling of his 1997 movie Mimic and basically just Harvey Weinstein yet again being the absolute biggest a-hole in Hollywood, Del Toro making the movie in Spain and making it a Spanish language movie was a bit of a risk at a time when most foreign and or subtitled movies don't play for English-speaking audiences. And to be honest, they mostly still don't. It's only really in recent years that you can actually go to your local cinema and see a foreign language movie playing on a wide release. I'm thinking of something like Parasite is a really good example of that. Doing it this way meant Del Toro retained complete creative control, but that would come with its own drawbacks. And again, put a pin in that because I'm going to come back to that a little bit later. Ivana Baquero was chosen from about 1,000 young actresses to play Ophelia. Baquero started acting professionally aged 8, but was 10 when she was cast as Ophelia. Guillermo del Toro was so impressed with Baquero that he aged the character up. Ophelia was originally 8 years old in the original script. And just in case you'd like to feel super old, because it definitely made me feel super old, Ivana Baquero is now 27 years old. So this sweet, innocent beautiful 11 year old child is now 27. So <laughs> yes, that made me feel incredibly old. Led by director of photography Guillermo Navarro, who frequently collaborates with Guillermo del Toro, the real world and the fantasy world would be differentiated by colour. The fantasy realm would be bathed in warm crimsons and golds and feature rounded shapes. The warmth bleeds into the real world in the characters of Mercedes who remains a surrogate mother figure to Ophelia. The reality of the real world is plagued with cool blues and greens and sharp, harsh angles represented by Vidal and his troops. Filming was underway in July 2005 with a modest budget and a short prep time. The film was primarily shot an hour outside of Madrid, near Segovia, in an area suffering from an extreme drought, meaning no fires could burn, no sparks could be set off. And basically, that could cause a forest fire. Pretty much all fires seen in the movie are digital for this very reason. The on-location set was a huge building in a forest clearance, and the kitchen and storage room were shot on location. Other interiors, as well as most of the fantasy settings, were shot on a soundstage in Madrid. Frequent Del Toro collaborator Doug Jones plays the titular fawn. He's also featured on this podcast several times. He's been on for Hellboy, he's been on for Hellboy 2, but also on the episode on the Buffy the Vampire Slayer episode Hush, which is episode 22 of this podcast, by the way. Doug Jones is not a native Spanish speaker, but he actually did learn how to speak Spanish for the movie. And then a voice actor was matched up to Jones's lip sync to provide the real Spanish voice of the fawn. Jones is known for his physical acting and embodying the role completely. He does his own stunts and he often wears a lot of makeup and prosthetics. When offered the role, which he originally assumed would go to a Spanish actor, he was given five hours to decide whether he wanted to do it. He read the script and he connected with the character. He immediately knew he had to be involved in a movie which had the chance of becoming a modern classic. And obviously when we're talking about Pan's Labyrinth, the main thing that I think a lot of people remember in Pan's Labyrinth is the incredible creature work and creature design and practical creature effects that are in this movie. And so for this imaginative, dark, twisted fairy tale, Guillermo del Toro contacted David Marti and Monsa Reba of DDT Special Effects in Barcelona. Del Toro had worked with the pair on both The Devil's Backbone and Hellboy. And it was during their time on Hellboy where del Toro was already concocting his plans for Pan's Labyrinth, with the fawn as a goat-like creature with furry legs, possibly a little bit like aforementioned Mr Tumnus in The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, the fawn eventually evolved into a creature that looked right out of nature, with woodland-infused appendages that went through six design stages. The effects work in Pan's Labyrinth is mostly practical, with a minimum of digital effects, Doug Jones, who would state that the fawn was his favourite creature to portray. The fawn costume was mostly latex foam with 10 pound horns that took five hours to put on for filming. The legs were 20 centimetre high lifts with the legs basically attached to his own, which were then digitally erased in post-production. That's Doug Jones's legs, not the fawn's legs, obviously. The fawn's ears and eyes were operated remotely by David Marty and Xavi Bastida of DDT. Del Toro basically told Jones to go full rock star as the fawn, less David Bowie and more Mick Jagger, and an interesting little link to David Bowie coming later in this episode too. 
The decision to make the fallen age backwards is not something that's immediately obvious in the movie, and I'll admit that I didn't see it initially, but every time you see him, he gets more physically agile, his hair colour changes, his skin gets more colourful, and his eyes brighten up and sparkle. Doug Jones himself interpreted this change as the fact that the underworld has waited so long for Princess Moana to return that it's been decaying in her absence, and the more tests she passes, the more likely she is to return. And so the fawn becomes more youthful and powerful, as the underworld benefits from her returning to them. Guillermo del Toro wanted Doug Jones to play both the fawn and the pale man, not for cost-saving reasons, but simply that Jones was the best performer for the job. Plus, del Toro, in his head, created the idea that the fawn created the pale man. Perhaps they were born of the same creature. The fawn sends children to the pale man in order to pass the test. And perhaps the fawn created him for that purpose. And the Pale Man is an extension of the Fawn in many respects. We're going to talk about the Pale Man now. So <laughs> if, you, if you have nightmares, then maybe fast forward a little bit. So the Pale Man has no eyes in his head. They are instead placed into his palms, which is literal nightmare fuel, by the way. It still is and it always will be. It's inspired by the Japanese mythological monster, the Tonomi, which literally means hand eyes. Doug Jones had to look out of the creature's nostrils and again his legs were digitally removed to leave the skinny legs of the creature. Originally Del Toro envisaged a creature with wide lips that the skull underneath could pop out of and the skeleton crawl out and then transfer into something to chase Ophelia. Then they went with the idea of this old man who used to be overweight but is now just skin and bone. The pale man was inspired by Francisco Goya's painting of Saturn devouring his son. It depicts the Greek myth of the Titan Cronus, or Saturn, who, fearing that he would be overthrown by his children, ate each one upon their birth. Goya painted it directly on the walls of his house between 1819 and 1823. After his death, it was transferred to canvas. Del Toro has also spoken of the Pale Man being both the representation and criticism of the Catholic Church, an institution which has a bounty in its possession, such as a feast in front of it, and yet has a penchant for feasting on children, referencing the many, many young children who are sexually abused by Catholic priests, as well as representative of fascism, just as depicted in the real world part of the movie set in Franco's fascist Spain. The fact that the Pale Man can silently come up behind you and eat you still haunts my nightmares. In fact, I still hide a lot behind my hands in this scene. So when the Pale Man is putting his hands up and chasing Ophelia, I am behind my hands because I am still terrified by the Pale Man and I'm not afraid to admit it because he is an absolutely petrifying character. And the Pale Man has killed countless children, as seen in the paintings he presumably himself painted because no one else seems to have access to this area, perhaps to remind himself of his macabre achievements, as well as we see a pile of children's shoes, which again invokes a lot of this Holocaust imagery, especially when we think of when this movie is set, the Holocaust was going on at the time, and it's really quite upsetting. It's absolutely petrifying, but it's also really, really upsetting to see a pile of children's shoes. And despite seeing these, and being warned by both the fawn and the fairies, Ophelia succumbs and eats a grape, which awakens the pale man. And as I said, one of the scariest creations that I think Doug Jones has ever been, maybe even more so than the gentleman in Buffy. Ophelia is smart enough, though, not to draw a door on the wall, because the pale man could easily get through into the real world. And so she paints it on the ceiling, which is actually a genius idea, because the pale man won't be able to climb up. And just for that brief split second moment when you think that he might through the floor is always a scene that really gets my heart racing. Because if you think of that monster, um, what he could do to a child, it's just thinking about it and talking about it actually makes me really, really anxious, you know? <laughs> this is not really a movie that you could sit and watch with your family. The Fawn and the Pale Man might be the most memorable creatures in Pan's Labyrinth, but they weren't the most complex. That fell down to the Toad. So the Toad lives under the willow tree. He is inspired by the monster in the 1953 horror film The Maze, directed by William Cameron Menzies. Originally, this was supposed to be a huge elaborate setting, but that changed to a claustrophobic tunnel under a tree because the toad puppet couldn't actually move like Del Toro wanted it to. 
The suit was heavy. It weighed almost as much as Monster Reba herself. The toad also ended up getting enhanced by CG, which was handled by Cafe FX, who also handled the CG fairies, the CG stick insect, and the practical and CG fetus-shaped mandrake root that Ophelia puts in a bowl of milk and feeds blood to help her sick mother, which screams as it's dying, which is also completely petrifying. The legend of the mandrake says that when the root is dug up, its screams will kill everyone who hears it. Just FYI. And this movie is steeped in legend and mythology. There's just so much in this movie that Del Toro has put in. It would be impossible for me to reference every single thing. And I'm trying to reference as much in this movie as possible because this movie is so rich and varied and full of detail and inspiration and fairy tales and mythology and all of this wonderful stuff and that's why I love this movie so much but it would be practically impossible for me to reference every single little bit of trivia in this movie. Speaking of effects, I mentioned DDT special effects so they are based in Barcelona. They would look upon the experience of working on Pan's Labyrinth fondly and they would actually end up winning an Oscar for their trouble but admittedly Pan's Labyrinth was one of the hardest things they ever did and they ended up bankrupt. Despite this, they felt that working with Guillermo del Toro and Doug Jones was worth it. Even del Toro himself suffered for his art. He lost £40 while making Pan's Labyrinth, citing the time and financial pressures. He ended up investing his own money into the production, as well as giving up his director and producer salaries just to get it made. To me, this is his magnum opus. This is the movie that will go down in history as being his best work. And that's obviously discounting anything that he might do in the future. Obviously, this has been recorded in 2021. But for me, this is the best movie that I've seen of Guillermo del Toro's. And admittedly, I've not seen all of his movies. I plan to, because I think he's an excellent, exceptional director. But for me, this is his masterpiece. This is the best thing that he's ever done. I mentioned in the episode that I did on Children of Men about Alfonso Cuaron. Uh, Alfonso Cuaron and Guillermo del Toro are good friends. To me, Children of Men is Alfonso Cuaron's masterpiece. And to me, Pan's Labyrinth is Guillermo del Toro's masterpiece. So I'm not actually going to be recommending Children of Men as a companion episode to this because thematically, they're so wildly different in every possible way. The only thing that links them is they are the masterpiece of their Mexican director, which I don't think is enough to say it's a companion piece, but really, genuinely, truly, I think this is his magnum opus. I think this is the greatest piece of work that he's ever done. Um, Del Toro notes the difference in filmmaking of eye candy and eye protein. And this is something that I really love. So Del Toro says that eye candy is something that you eat visually, but is superfluous to the storytelling. It looks good, but it doesn't tell the story. And eye protein is beautiful and technically complex, but it tells the story. And I think that's a really lovely way to describe Pan's Labyrinth. Pan's Labyrinth is eye protein. It's beautiful. It's masterful. It's technically complex. It's got all of the right ingredients in there to completely fill you up and completely satisfy you in every way. And Pan's Labyrinth could never, ever be accused of just being eye candy, which is unlike most fantasy movies, especially fairy tale movies. They tend to focus more on the design and the look of the movie than the actual story underneath. Whereas Del Toro manages to do all of that. He manages to make it look beautiful and he manages to give it some substance as well. So yeah, I really like the whole eye protein and eye candy thing. The way that Del Toro describes it, I think is really apt for this movie. So let's move on to the obligatory Keanu reference for this episode. This is a part of the podcast where I try to link the movie that I'm featuring with Keanu Reeves. It's getting more and more difficult because I try and make them unique every episode. And then I realise I'm going to have to try and link Keanu to Pan's Labyrinth. But then I had a bit of a brainwave because then I realised that Pan's Labyrinth is based on fairy tales and folklore. And another thing that's based on folklore is John Wick. I did an episode on the John Wick trilogy with Laurel and Derek of The Midnight Myth in that episode because they are the podcast that's literally the masters of mythology. And they go into detail on the legend of Baba Yaga and how it pertains to John Wick. And so really, 
if I'm going to link Keanu to this movie, it has to be via the folklore and the legend of Baba Yaga. And also, I like to think that John Wick could take on the Pale Man, and I think John Wick could win. I mean, let's be honest, John Wick's got a hell of a lot of guns. <laughs> and I don't think the Pale Man would survive a bullet. So, yeah, basically, if you're going to go into the Pale Man's lair, take Keanu. He will make sure that you are okay. One of the most beautiful things in the movie is the music. And there is a very beautiful, simple, yet haunting lullaby, which is used to structure the score for Pan's Labyrinth. The score was by Javier Navarrete. It was nominated for an Academy Award. The art used on the soundtrack cover was a Drew Struzan promotional poster, which was actually never used for the movie. Now, being a Spanish language movie set and filmed in Spain, it made complete sense that Pan's Labyrinth would basically be released first in Spain. And so it was released first in Spain. It was released on the 11th of October 2006 and it would open at number one in the Spanish box office in the UK. We would get it on the 24th of November 2006 and the US would get it on the 29th of December 2006. In the US, it would have a limited release at 17 theatres in the first week before peaking at 1,109 theatres in its seventh week of release. The movie would peak at seventh at the US box office. And although that doesn't sound very high, that still made it the fifth highest domestically grossing foreign film at the US box office, which is actually quite an achievement, really. Guillermo del Toro was frustrated with the subtitles for his other Spanish language movie, The Devil's Backbone. So what he did, he actually wrote the English subtitles for Pan's Labyrinth himself. He took a month. He had a friend and an assistant working on them with him. So the subtitles that you see on Pan's Labyrinth are actually from Guillermo del Toro himself. Obviously, he is fluent in Spanish. He's fluent in English. So he is actually the best person to do the subtitles because he knows the nuances in the script and the nuances of the translation between Spanish and English. And it basically meant that he could provide the best English for the scene as he wanted it. Pan's Labyrinth was made for a relatively tiny $19 million budget. It would go on to make $37.6 million domestically in the US and 46.2 million internationally for a worldwide gross of $83.8 million. Critically, this is a critical darling. It sits at 95% on Rotten Tomatoes. Who in the 5% doesn't like this movie? Who are you? Seriously? <laughs> I'm going to send Keanu to find you. It also has 98 on Metacritic and Metacritic also named it their top overall movie of the decade of the 2000s, actually beating its very close cousin Spirited Away. I'm going to be mentioning that shortly. It received a 22-minute standing ovation at the Cannes Film Festival, one of the longest in the festival's history. It was listed as the number one movie of 2006 in eight top critics lists, including Mark Commode and Roger Ebert, and it's number 17 on the BBC's list of the best 100 films of the 21st century. So, yeah, basically, critics love this movie, as they absolutely should. At the 79th Academy Awards, it was nominated for six awards in total, nominated for Best Original Screenplay, Best Foreign Language Film, and Best Original Score, and winning for Best Art Direction, Best Cinematography, and Best Makeup. It was nominated for eight BAFTAs, for Best Original Screenplay, Best Cinematography, Best Production Design, Best Sound, and winning for Best Film Not in the English Language, Best Costume Design, and Best Makeup and Hair. It would also win big at Spain's Goya Awards, obviously named after Goya himself, their equivalent of the Oscars, winning five awards of the 13 it was nominated for, as well as Mexico's Ariel Awards, winning seven awards of the 11 it was nominated for. A spiritual sequel called 3993 was planned. It was another fantasy film with the Spanish Civil War in the background, but set during two time periods, starting in 1993 and then switching to 1939, hence 3993, 3993. But Del Toro decided to instead focus on Hellboy 2, The Golden Army. And I can't be sad about that because if you've listened to those episodes on Hellboy, you will know 
How Much I Adore Hellboy 2 The Golden Army. It's one of the very rare sequels that is better than its original movie. I am a huge fan of Del Toro. It's actually quite interesting that this is only the third of his movies that I featured on Verbal Diorama because I've seen a lot of his movies and uh, I am a big fan of pretty much all of them. I've not seen a Del Toro movie that I don't like. So I am sad that we're never going to see 3993 or 3993 or however it was pronounced. Because I think that would have been quite interesting. But I think I've made it clear how I feel about this movie because I adore it. It delights me. It frightens me. It makes me cry so hard. But I want to know what everyone else thinks. So I asked on social media what everyone thinks and I start with the patrons of this podcast and we're going to start with Andy and Andy says Pan's Labyrinth is Guillermo del Toro's masterwork a beautiful horrific fairy tale which conveys terror wonder and tragedy that is the hallmark of his style of filmmaking and certainly paved the way for the shape of water definitely need to rewatch this again as it's been forever and I'm tired with feeling happy And you all know Andy by now, he's one of the hosts of the all-encompassing geek podcast that is Geek Salad. Go and listen to them for all of your nerdy needs for everything to do with movies, TV shows, music, games. There's hundreds of quality episodes and information on them is in the show notes. We also have a comment from Ian who says, Really like this film. I think all of the actors are superb and the story is just so gritty. It seems like a return to some of the ancient fantasy films like Labyrinth and Neverending Story, but made more for grown-ups. I really like the central performance of Sergi Lopez as Vidal. He's just so good. You absolutely hate him and can't wait to see his comeuppance. More patron comments. Uh, We're going to continue with Derek, who says... What is the value of fairy tales in a world where might makes right and violence, control, dominance are the means by which the state control their subjects? Del Toro explores this and more in this extraordinary modern myth. Fascist, fawns and frogs. I love every frame. And just to add as well, there is also a comment from his wife and co-host Laurel. And she says, This is a top five movie for me. It's gorgeous, heartbreaking and totally original. And Derek and Laurel together, they host the incredible podcast, The Midnight Myth. And they've also got an excellent Pan's Labyrinth episode, which I will link to in the show notes, as myths, legend and folklore really is their area of expertise. It's not really mine. So if you want more on the mythology and the history and the folklore behind Pan's Labyrinth, then absolutely listen to their episode. We also have a comment from Sam who says, Near Perfect Film. Absolutely love everything about it, apart from some dodgy CGI. 9,999 out of 10,000. And if you've ever asked 20 weird and wonderful questions about a movie that you've seen, then you should probably check out Sam's podcast, It's Movie Reviews in 20 Qs, because that's basically what they do. They basically ask questions that no other podcast is ever going to ask. And it's a fantastic podcast. Uh, Information on that is in the show notes. And we're going to finish patron comments with a comment from Brendan, who says, A masterpiece, even among his other masterpieces, Pan's Labyrinth is a showcase of both Guillermo del Toro's bone-deep empathy and humanism, and his acknowledgement of humanity's potential for monstrous actions, even beyond that of the horrendous creatures from our myths. Pan's Labyrinth goes as pitch dark as you can go with the material, while still leaving just enough light for the audience to find their way out when the credits roll and a celebration of the actors and the world the film's artists designed for them to inhabit. It's a film so full of tragedy that you'd think it would be impossible to revisit, but because it so ably mixes the bitter medicine with hope and genuine wonder, I find it as enriching as it is harrowing to return to. Fairy tales don't come much better or truer than this. And as always, a huge thank you to the patrons for their comments. We're going to move over to Twitter now. And we're going to start with at Best Film Everpod, who says, I actually have to teach this film. While it's not my method of storytelling, but I'll be damned if the ambiguous ending didn't suck me in. My vote is that everything we see is a coping mechanism and she just dies. The casting of her mother as the queen is the tipping point. At Thief CGT said, I've seen it a couple of times. First time was at the theatre and I love it. It's a perfect blend of innocent fantasy and tragic reality. Great performances, excellent direction and a truly compelling story make it one of the best foreign films I've seen. 
And at Waffles the Magic said, Del Toro is a visionary filmmaker and this film is a visual feast. Pan certainly would be proud if they could make their way out of the darn labyrinth. We don't have any comments on Instagram or Facebook this time round, but a massive thank you to everyone on Twitter, well, the three people on Twitter that commented and all of the patrons for commenting on a movie that genuinely is full of so much pain and torture and awful stuff, but also so full of wonder and joy. And I think that's one of the reasons why, as Brendan so succinctly put it, you can continue to go back to this movie. It's not a movie that you will watch once. It does benefit from multiple rewatches and it is one of those movies that you should rewatch. So thank you to everyone for their comments. Pan's Labyrinth is a fairy tale like all other fairy tales. We've all grown up on Disney's adaptations of classic fairy tales like Snow White and Cinderella and Sleeping Beauty. And while these versions remain on the whole faithful to the original text, they were also romanticised and showed a patriarchal view on the fairy tale genre, that the handsome prince would always come along to save the helpless princess, and that the princess could rely on her animal friends to help her in her hour of need. Ophelia's quest and her desire to want something more from her life is familiar to all of us who grew up watching Disney animations, to escape from a life of pain and misery, shrouded in the surrounded real-life war between Vidal and the mountain rebels. Ophelia is drawn to a magical, mystical world of fairies, fawns and promises of princesses and most importantly the father that she lost. She repeats multiple times that Vidal is not her father. Whether the fantasy realm is real or not is not up for debate. I think it's real personally. Many suggest that the finale where Ophelia can see and speak to the fawn but Vidal cannot see him means that the fantasy realm is a figment of her imagination. But I disagree with that because if you look at a character like Vidal Perhaps his eyes are so clouded by hate and misogyny that he's just not actually willing to see what's there. Additionally, you could argue that he was drugged by Ophelia and could actually be hallucinating that the fawn is not there as opposed to the fact that it clearly is there. But really, the point is moot. To Ophelia, both worlds are real, both worlds are dangerous, both worlds contain joy and sorrow, and both are beyond the realms of her understanding. When offered the role of princess, what child would deny it? And just on one of the overarching themes, I just want to finish talking about Pan's Labyrinth. And I want to use a quote. And the quote is, To obey just like that, for the sake of obeying, without questioning, that's something only people like you can do, Captain. This is what Dr. Ferrero says when Vidal asks him why he didn't obey him. And when you think of disobedience, you think of a spoiled child having a tantrum, which is actually, coincidentally, how I see Vidal. If you think of the huntsman in Snow White, who disobeyed a direct order from the Queen to kill the princess, his act of disobedience saved a young girl's life, led her to finding the dwarves and then her prince. Acts of disobedience are commonplace in fairy tale lore and are rampant throughout Pan's Labyrinth. From the aforementioned doctor killing a rebel to stop his pain, against Vidal's wishes, to the rebels in the mountains disobeying the fascist regime, to Mercedes disobeying Vidal and working with the rebels, and most importantly to the story of Ophelia disobeying the fawn and the fairies and her own mother. The movie frames disobedience as good and right. Del Toro has admitted that the main themes in the movie are disobedience and choice. Ophelia chooses to make the ultimate sacrifice, her life for her baby brothers, thus proving that she is true and good and worthy despite her disobedient behaviour, and then even in the harshest of times, love triumphs. Many, many years ago, in a sad faraway land, there was an enormous mountain made of rough black stone. At sunset, on top of that mountain, a magic rose blossomed every night that made whoever plucked it immortal. But no one dared go near it because its thorns were full of poison. Men talked amongst themselves about their fear of death, and pain, but never about the promise of eternal life. And every day the rose wilted, unable to bequeath its gift to anyone, forgotten and lost at the top of that cold, dark mountain, forever alone until the end of time. Thank you for listening. As always, I would love to hear your thoughts on Pan's Labyrinth. If you've enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to help Verbal Diorama grow and be noticed by new listeners by doing something like telling your friends and family about this episode. 
You can retweet or like posts on social media, or you can leave a rating and a review on something like Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. That would be excellent. And if you did like this episode on Pan's Labyrinth, then you might also like one of the following episodes. So I'm going to firstly recommend episode 35, which is on Spirited Away. As I mentioned before, Spirited Away shares a lot of similarities with this movie. It is a Miyazaki movie, it's a Studio Ghibli movie, it's a Japanese movie. Again, just on the subs v dubs, I don't care how you watch anime, I really don't. If there was a dubbed version of Pan's Labyrinth, to be honest, I would recommend it because any way that a person watches a movie is absolutely fine by me as long as they watch it. So where you've got the subs or dubs on Spirited Away, either, either is fine. Um, but Spirited Away really takes inspiration from Alice in Wonderland, very similar to this movie does. Um, and it is a beautifully animated movie. It's one of Miyazaki's greatest pieces of work. And you should absolutely watch Spirited Away. You should also listen to episode 35, I'd also recommend episode 38, which is Hellboy, and episode 39, which is on Hellboy 2, The Golden Army, purely because, I mean, they are my Hellboy movies. I disregard the 2019 reboot version. I really, really love Guillermo del Toro's world building. I love his creature design, and Hellboy and Hellboy 2, The Golden Army are actually two of the most underrated comic book adaptations out there. I'm always going to lament that we are never going to see Hellboy 3 from Del Toro. Ron Perlman has basically said that he's too old to do it now. It's really sad for me because having that trilogy capped out would just be brilliant as far as I'm concerned. So yes, episode 38 Hellboy, episode 39 Hellboy to the Golden Army. They actually both contain snippets of an interview that I had with Peter Briggs, who was the writer of Hellboy, and he had some really interesting things to say about his working on Hellboy. So if you're interested in that, then have a listen to those episodes. And finally, episode 63, Coraline. Uh, again, a very dark, twisted fantasy story about a young girl who gets transported to another version of her world. And it's a beautiful movie. It's an animated movie. It's a stop motion movie by Laika. And I'm a big fan of animation, as most listeners will know. And so I'm always going to try and recommend as much animation as possible on this podcast. And Coraline is an absolutely stunning piece of work. So if you do enjoy Pan's Labyrinth and you happen upon Coraline, then you would absolutely benefit from watching Coraline. It has some really spooky, quite scary moments in it as well. Out of the recommendations, it probably is the spookiest recommendation, but absolutely worth your time. So as always, give me feedback on my episode recommendations. Do you think I got it right? Let me know on social media. I've given a couple of hints so far as to what the next episode could be. And the next episode is actually a little bit different because every year I do a birthday episode. It comes out on my birthday. <laughs> it's not a podcast birthday, it's actually my birthday. The first year I did The Iron Giant and last year I did Jurassic Park. And both of those movies were kind of seminal to me. I grew up with Jurassic Park and The Iron Giant just blew me away the first time that I saw it. And when it came to planning this year's birthday episode, I thought to myself, well, what is another movie that was really, really part of my life and part of my childhood? And what have I grown up with? And then it just kind of hit me. Well, to be honest, there's only really one choice for this year's birthday episode. I've mentioned David Bowie. He is a man who I didn't really have much exposure to when I was a kid. I didn't really know his music. I only really knew him for one thing, and that was Jareth, the Goblin King. And so then I thought, well, Pan's Labyrinth is the penultimate episode in August. It makes complete sense to have Labyrinth as the final episode in August. So we are going to be returning to a Labyrinth. It's not the same one as in this movie, but it is the actual Labyrinth. We're going to go to the Goblin City to find Sarah's baby brother. And I'm really, really, really excited to talk about Labyrinth. This is a movie that I've literally grown up with. I am in love with everything about it. I am a little bit obsessed with Labyrinth. So it's going to be a lot of fun, actually, to talk about Labyrinth. So please join me next week for slightly less scary monsters, <laughs> let's be honest, and David Bowie in very, very, very tight trousers. So yeah, please come back 
for Labyrinth. It is the birthday episode, so that will be coming out on the 31st of August. There will be normal episodes coming out every Thursday, and then the 31st, I believe, is a Tuesday. So that episode will come out on the Tuesday, and then there will be another episode following that on the Thursday. But this is just a special bonus episode for my birthday. So yeah, very excited to talk about Labyrinth. If you want to follow me on social media, you can do so. I am at Verbal Diorama on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram and Letterboxd. If you want to help support the show financially, you can do so on the Patreon. It's simply verbaldiorama.com Patreon. And as always, a huge thank you to the patrons of Verbal Diorama. They get a shout out every episode. They are Simon E, Sade, Hardy L, Claudia, Simon B, Laurel, Derek, Jason, Kristen, Kat, Andy, Mike, Griff, Luke, Emily, Michael, Scott, Mark, Brendan, Ian, Lisa, Dan and Sam. Old names that only the wind and the trees can pronounce. Merch stories at verbaldiorama.com slash merch. You can email me, you can say hello, you can give me feedback, verbaldiorama at gmail.com or you can pop over to the website which is simply verbaldiorama.com and as always I write for film stories. There is a magazine that comes out in the post, there is a website filmstories.co.uk. I am going to be taking a brief break because I'm going on holiday, not literally on holiday, but I'm taking a break from my day job and I'm taking a little break from the podcast too. Like I say, episodes are still going to come out because I'm banking them, but otherwise I'm going to be taking a bit of a break. So there won't be any articles for about a week or so on film stories from me, but you should absolutely check out the stuff that is there because you should absolutely support independent British publications. And finally, and it is said that the princess returned to her father's kingdom, that she reigned there with justice and a kind heart for many centuries, that she was loved by her people and that she left behind small traces of her time on earth, visible only to those who knew where to look. Bye. Movie should know, movie should